Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. Our uh, youth ministries director, Ryan Jocelyn, has put together a college and young adults group here at Stonebridge, and last night they had a bunco night. And I went and played bunco with them. And it's my firm belief that when you play bunco, you yell. You yell loudly. And I yelled too much to the point that my voice now is on the verge of just being gone. So I'm hoping we can get through this sermon. Um, But I wanted you all to know I'm not sick. I, well, I'm not physically sick. Competitive-wise, there might be some sickness there. Um, And also, just let you all know, I did lose. Lose handily, actually. Um, but it was a great time. But hopefully my voice doesn't give out entirely. Um, so we, we're in a sermon series looking at um, these letters that Peter wrote. And the sermon series is entitled, Peter, Rock On. Because Peter's name means rock in Greek. Yeah, I've been saying for weeks it'd be funny again, and it's not. Um, so I let you down, and I'm sorry. I apologize. The, the, the pun did not work towards the end here. But Peter writes these letters as an encouragement. He's helping Christians in his own day who are experiencing suffering know who they are, know who the God that they worship is, and helping them learn how to respond. So I'm going to be reading from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 now. And I invite you to hear God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will. But men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is God's Word. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your Scriptures. And as we turn to the Scriptures now, we ask that you would illuminate them. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, open up these scriptures to us. Help us to understand how you use scripture. Help us to understand how we are to read scripture. Help us to understand how we can be shaped and formed by it, that we might be your people spreading the hope we have in you to those who don't have hope, Lord. Guide us now. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Peter uses this phrase in this passage, cleverly devised myths. And that's a phrase that resonates with me, not because I think those are good, but because I I think they're common. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity here. Is Peter talking about false teaching that is within the church, that uses Christian language, but uses Christian language to teach different concepts that don't line up with what Jesus taught? Or is he using this term cleverly devised myth to describe teachings outside of the church? 
or is it both? We don't really know exactly. But in this passage, Peter is distinguishing his gospel, what he preaches, what he proclaims, from cleverly devised myths. Cleverly devised stories. Stories that have been put together to influence, to manipulate, to get a certain outcome. He's distinguishing his teaching from that. When you look around at the world, I think we can see all sorts of cleverly devised myths today. There's all sorts of different stories that are generated, made to get us to buy a certain product, to vote a certain way, to dislike a certain group of people, to to believe in a certain policy. And a lot of these are very cleverly devised, and a lot of them are myths in the sense that they're not actually true. To the point that I think at times we can all find ourselves wondering what exactly is true? What is it that is actually true? What is actually accurate? Where I resonate with Peter using this phrase, though, is that it comforts me a bit. Because even though we have cleverly devised myths today and we have the internet that seems to just power them like crazy, they dealt with it in their day also. In fact, almost every single human society that we know of has had some form of cleverly devised myths, some sort of stories that were told, that were made, that were concocted to influence people's behavior. This is a common thing with humanity. And Peter was dealing with it. And I think through this passage, we see a bit how Peter addresses it. He hints at some ways for the people he's writing to, for them to understand what is true and what isn't. And I think at its most basic form, Peter is helping them to understand. If you want to know what is true, turn to Scripture. Now, that's one of the most obvious things a pastor can say. I think every pastor at some point has said, if you want to know what's true, turn to Scripture. And it sounds so simple, but it's actually very, very complicated. It's actually much more complicated than you might realize. There are cleverly devised myths in the church as well that use the language of Scripture, but that aren't actually rooted in the reality revealed in Jesus Christ and the truth revealed in Jesus Christ. And there's ways in which we talk about the Bible that I think doesn't line up with what Peter is talking about. I once had somebody say to me, the Bible has every answer to whatever question you could ask of it. And I remember thinking, I really hope my dentist doesn't think that's true. There are some questions that the Bible doesn't actually address. And it's okay to acknowledge that. And the Bible was never meant to be a random fact book that you just picked out a verse here or there and pieced a bunch of different verses together out of context and then told somebody that that's the way it is. There's a number of reasons why I can confidently say that that is not what the Bible was intended to be and that's not the way it's supposed to be used. And I can say that Because of Peter and the way Peter talks about things. When Peter talks about the prophecy of Scripture, when he's talking about Scripture, 
there's actually no way that Peter could have been talking about this. What I mean by this is a small handheld Bible that I can go off and read by myself that has all the books of the Bible contained in it. There's no way Peter could have been talking about this because it simply did not exist in his day. In fact, what I'm holding in my hand right now has only existed for a few hundred years. The vast majority of Christians did not experience Scripture this way. We know this because when Peter is writing his letter, the Bible wasn't completely written because he's writing his letter, which is in the Bible. And there were a number of books in the New Testament that would have been written after Peter would have died. The Gospel of John, we know, was written after Peter would have died. So the Bible was still being written. So there's no way Peter could have been talking about this when he's talking about Scripture. The other reason Peter could have been talking about this is because a book is a technology. In Peter's day, this was not how you wrote things down. There wasn't a printing press. You didn't bind books this way. What they had were manuscripts. A lot of them would have taken the form of scrolls that you unrolled. And these were very, very expensive to produce. And none of them were something that you would just hold in your hand and read casually. So Peter couldn't have been talking about what I'm holding in my hand here. The other thing is, we're used to a very high literacy rate. We have a public school system that is actually very successful at what it's tried to do since it's been established. People in our culture learn how to read at a very early age. Not everybody, but by and large, we have very high literacy rates when you compare it to historical standards. In Peter's day, not everybody knew how to read. In fact, majority of people very likely didn't know how to read because you had to have special training to learn how to read. If you were a carpenter or a fisherman, you were trained in that. You weren't trained to read. So the idea that you would just pick up a Bible and read it, that is not something that would have been in Peter's mind when he's writing this letter. When he's talking about Scripture, what Peter is likely referring to is a bunch of manuscripts that we call the Old Testament. But it would have been the Old Testament written in Greek. And the list of the Greek Old Testament, of the books that are in the Greek Old Testament, it's actually different than our Old Testament, which is based off of Hebrew. So there's different books. In fact, one of the books of the New Testament, Jude, quotes a book as scripture that did not make it into our Old Testament. I hope you're getting the picture here that when Peter's talking about scripture, it's pretty different than what most of us think of when we think of scripture. It was a different experience of God's word. It was a different way of receiving God's word. The vast majority of Christians did not go to their homes, pick up their Bible off of the coffee table, and read a devotion by themselves. That's actually a minority way of experiencing the Bible and experiencing Scripture. And I say this not just to give you some trivia so you can win a trivia night or something. I say this to help us understand Scripture is more than just a book. The Scripture Peter is talking about 
was meant to shape us, to form us, to develop communities. And the way most people would have experienced it was one person reading out loud to a community what was written down on one of those scrolls. It would have been more precious to them. They wouldn't have had five, ba- five Bibles at home sitting on their coffee tables as decorations like many of us do. The words would have mattered, but what would have mattered more was the message behind them and the God that they experienced through them. So our experience of Scripture, it's different than Peter's. The technology that we use of a book that we can hold in our hand is different than his experience, and I think it shapes us differently. If you want to know what is true, though, my statement still stands. Turn to Scripture. But be mindful of how you turn to Scripture. Don't just try to pull a few verses out of context. Because also recognize in the original manuscripts that we have, verses didn't exist. Those have only been around for a few hundred years also. And that being able to pull a verse out of the Bible would have been odd to Peter as well. It's not a random fact book. Instead, it's a a story with a message that reveals God to us. And one of the key points of the Bible and Scripture is it has these prophecies. That's what Peter talks about here. That's what he's distinguishing his teaching from the cleverly devised myths. They have the message of prophecy, he says. Now, when we talk about prophecy, a lot of times you're going to think of history written down before it happens. That's not really the biblical idea of prophecy, though. In the Bible, prophecy isn't always about the future. In fact, it's very rarely about the future. The prophets in the Old Testament were most often speaking to their day. And prophecy is, just broadly speaking, a message from God, a message that God gives. Somebody speaks on behalf of God. It might deal with the future, but more often than not, it deals with now. It deals with this moment. Go back and read the book of Isaiah and realize how much of it talks about the struggles Israel is experiencing in their day and their time. So prophecy is there. And the main function of prophecy is to reveal to us what God cares about. And if you want to know what's true, then pay attention to what God cares about. The Old Testament prophets spent most of their time trying to help Israel remember to care for everyone in their society, care for the poor, care for the oppressed, care for those who have been neglected because they were the image of God also and God cared about them. You read the book of Amos. That's what that book is talking about all the way through. The prophets were there to reveal what God cares about so that the people who worshiped God, could respond, caring about what God cares about. So if you want to know if something's true or not, does it line up with what the prophets reveal to us that God cares about? Does it actually reflect what God cares about as revealed in the prophets? If it doesn't, it's not true. It's not the truth that God would have us live our lives by. Now, I will say, too, sometimes the prophets do deal with stuff in the future. It does happen. 
But the Bible gives us a test for prophecy. It says that if somebody wants to lift themselves up as a prophet, one of the, way, one of the main ways you can tell if you should listen to them or not is, do the things they say are going to happen come to pass? Basically, are they wrong or not? And here's what I want to say. If there's somebody that you've been listening to that keeps telling you certain things are going to happen and they don't happen, just stop listening to them. It's really simple. If they're wrong over and over again and they keep saying, this is going to happen, just wait, or this is going to happen, just wait, they're not a prophet. They're wrong. Move on. It's okay. But for some reason, it seems hard for us to just let go once we've bought into somebody's teaching. But if they're not willing to admit that they were wrong, and they're not willing to stop trying to tell you what's going to happen, just move on. That's not a prophet. That's not true. The prophecies are meant to tell us what God cares about and how God is going to redeem and restore this world. That's its function. And Peter is contrasting his message with the cleverly devised myths that might use similar language, but that don't actually focus on what it is God cares about as revealed by the prophecies. So that's one thing I think we can learn from Peter here in navigating cleverly devised myths in our own world today. But there's another word he mentions here. Peter says that he is an eyewitness. He says, we are eyewitnesses to his glory. He refers to himself as an eyewitness, and then he starts talking about this story of the transfiguration. It's there in the Gospels. It's a story where Jesus gets taken up to a mountain, and in front of Peter, James, and John, he's transformed And a voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That's what Peter's referring to. And he's saying, we were there. We were eyewitnesses. We saw this happen. That claim to be an eyewitness, it's actually very common in the New Testament. In fact, I think you can summarize the New Testament with the simple phrase of, we witnessed Jesus's ministry We witnessed the way Jesus lived his life. We witnessed his miracles. We witnessed his death. And then we witnessed his resurrection and we saw him after his death when he was alive again. And because of that, we have hope that we will be raised also and that death does not win. I think that's the summary of the New Testament. That's the theme that it keeps coming back to. Every one of the authors comes back to that message at some point. And a key to it is, We saw this. You see this in the Gospel of John, in the letters from John. The Gospel of Luke, at the beginning, he talks about how he worked with eyewitnesses. And biblical scholars have developed plausible cases for how there's eyewitness testimony there in the Gospels. Over and over again, the Bible portrays itself as a witness to what God does. A witness to how God acted. That's how it portrays itself. And when you accept that, and you stop thinking the Bible is meant to be some fact book, when that's just not the way any of the biblical authors would have ever thought of it, I think it frames some things for you. 
you then begin to ask the question, are these witnesses reliable? It reframes that question. There's a confession in the Presbyterian church, and Stonebridge is a Presbyterian church. I feel like I have to remind people of that because it's not in our name, but we are Presbyterian. It's called the Confession of 1967. And it says, the one sufficient revelation of God is Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate, to whom the Holy Spirit bears unique and authoritative witness through the Holy Scriptures, which are received and obeyed as the word of God written. The Scriptures are not a witness among others, but the witness without parallel. That last line, I just love it. The Scriptures are not a witness among others, but the witness without parallel. The New Testament is trying to communicate what they saw. And the thing with eyewitness testimony is, it's more persuasive when there's more witnesses present. And I think when we embrace that, it does frame some things for us. You don't have to try and defend every single thing. You don't have to try to defend every single potential contradiction there in the Gospels. What I mean by that is there are some things that don't line up and we just have to acknowledge it. For instance, did Jesus overturn the tables in the temple at the beginning of his ministry or at the end of his ministry? If you ask Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's at the end of his ministry. It's one of the last things he does before he goes to the cross. If you ask the Gospel of John, it's one of the first things he does. In fact, it's the first thing in his public ministry. Which one was it? The beginning of his ministry or the end? Now, some people have said, well, he must have done it twice. Well, then that means all four of the Gospels didn't accurately convey when this happened because none of them say he did it twice. The simplest answer to this is, I don't know. I wasn't there. But we have four different witnesses that say Jesus overturned those tables. So I believe he overturned those tables. One of them may not have had the chronology exactly correct, but he overturned those tables. And there's a reason why it's presented the way it is. Another example, Mary Magdalene is the one who goes to the empty tomb and sees it first. But was she alone? And if not, who was with her? If you ask different gospels, you're going to get a different answer. The gospel of John has her alone. The other Gospels have her with people. The people who are there, the list changes. Who was actually there? I don't know. But you know what? I believe Mary Magdalene went there, that that tomb was empty, and that she was convincing when she conveyed it to other people, and that other people saw Jesus as well. Over and over again, you can go through these questions, and you can get caught up in little distinctions. But by and large, when you put the Gospels together, they tell a compelling and consistent story. That Jesus lived, that he performed some miracles, he healed people, that he gave some teaching, that he died, and that he was raised from the dead, and they saw him raised from the dead. They saw it. To me, that's what makes the New Testament convincing. And if you want to know what is true or not, well, figure out your answer to the question, do you think these witnesses are reliable? If you believe that they did see Jesus raised from the dead, well, then that means everything else Jesus said is true. And that means all the other teachings Jesus gave are true. And any sort of teaching 
that falls outside of what Jesus gave isn't true. Anything that doesn't reflect the teachings Jesus gave his earliest followers, it's simply not true. And any teaching that contradicts it, any teaching that tells you to hate your enemy, to despise your enemy, to gather more power so you can fight with your enemy, it's not true because that is not what Jesus said. So if you embrace this eyewitness testimony, if you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, then his teachings become our standard for truth. He becomes the standard for truth. I mean, the Gospel of John portrays Jesus as the truth. He's our marker. He's our standard. The way he lives his life becomes the way that we live our lives. And that's how you know what is actually true or not. There's one last thing Peter mentions. Well, it's not the last thing he mentions. It's the last thing I'm going to bring up here. But he reminds his readers that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That phrase, one's own interpretation, I think it's doing a lot of work for Peter. On the one hand, he's reminding them that these prophecies that have been passed down to us in Scripture that we can find here in the Bible, they don't just come from human hands. They come from God. They're messages from God. They came through human authors and human speakers, but ultimately God was working through those human authors and speakers. So it tells us that, but then it also reminds us it's not about one's own interpretation. Scripture was meant to be read in community. It was meant to be read with other people. And you and I don't have the luxury of just going off into our homes by ourselves, picking up the Bible, reading it, and saying, I've got it figured out. Now you all have to believe my interpretation. Peter's not saying there's no place for interpretation because every single written document has to be interpreted. But it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. We read scripture together. This is why at Stonebridge we have growth groups that are designed to get people together reading biblical passages together, reading the scriptures together, challenging one another, asking questions, disagreeing, because it is okay to disagree also. But there's this humility that's required in coming to the scriptures. A recognition that you might have it wrong. Maybe even a recognition of in some way, you definitely have it wrong. Let me also say, in some ways, I definitely have it wrong. Challenge what I say. Challenge my interpretations. Make me defend them from time to time. Give me a break here and there. But by and large, challenge these interpretations. Challenge one another. Scripture was never meant to be read isolated and alone. And I think that's the biggest problem with the way we experience Scripture, that I can go take this in a room by myself and read it on my own and think I'm good to go. It was never meant to be that way. That's not the way the early church experienced Scripture at all. And the way we can navigate what is true and what is a cleverly devised myth is by being humble together, offering up our thoughts and our ideas, being open to somebody challenging those, and recognizing maybe we were wrong. Maybe we needed to second guess ourselves more. Maybe we need to humble ourselves. 
I think interpreting scripture in a community is the way it was intended to be. The truth with scripture is it is a gift from God. It is meant to help us understand what is actually true. But it's a gift from God because it reveals God's character to us. It lets us know who Jesus is. It's our best way of understanding who God is in Jesus of Nazareth. And it helps us navigate what is true and what isn't because we see God's character revealed. So, as you go through this life, you're going to have all sorts of cleverly devised myths that come your way. Some will be in the church and use Christian language. Some will be outside in the world. Cling to the person of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. Cling to those moments in scripture where God's character is revealed. Use those as your standard for truth. And when something falls outside of the way Jesus tells us to live life, the way he models life for us, then it's a cleverly devised myth. And cling to the prophecies of scripture as the Holy Spirit reveals them to us. Please pray with me. Lord, we know that there is so much misinformation in this world. There is so many cleverly devised myths, Lord. And so much of them use words from the Bible, but teach concepts that are completely different than what is in the Bible. They don't help us to love our enemies. They don't help us to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, and mind. They don't help us to be peacemakers. They don't help us to be the poor in spirit. They don't help us to be humble. These cleverly devised myths, they tell us that something's wrong with us, or they tell us that something is wrong with the people next to us. They don't help us to understand the truth that we are your children, beloved by you. So help us to navigate this world and the misinformation in it. Help us to cling to the truth of you as revealed in the gospels, revealed in the scriptures, revealed in the prophecies. Help us to be your people, shaped and formed into your likeness.
the grave. 